Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we jump into this week's episode, I'd like to mention a weekend with Elizabeth I, a two-day online event exploring the life and reign of this iconic Tudor queen that's taking place on the weekend of the 17th and 18th of February. Enjoy talks by seven leading Tudor history experts, all from the comfort of your home. Participants will have access to all the content for two months after the event ends, so there's plenty of time to catch up if you're unable to watch any of the lectures over the weekend. The stellar list of contributors includes Dr. Nicola Tallis, Professor Susan Doran, Dr. James Taff, Professor Carol Levin, Professor Maria Haywood, and Dr. Owen Emerson. To learn more and register your place, head to my website on thetudortrail.com or just Google a weekend with Elizabeth I event bright. I do hope you'll consider joining me. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast, if you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors Patreon family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and take part in a member-only book club. They can also enter patron-only monthly giveaways to name but a few of the perks. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now on to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome G.J. Williams to the podcast to chat about her debut novel, The Conjurer's Apprentice. G.J. Williams is Welsh but raised in England. She grew up in Somerset where history, storytelling and adventure were the stuff of life. She wrote as a child but then a career in academia followed by international consulting meant that it was some years before the love of crafting a tale came back to the forefront of her life. G.J. Williams now lives between London and Somerset and is often found writing on the train journey next to a grumpy cat and a cup of tea. The tap of the keyboard keys transports her to medieval England and all the sounds, smells and intrigues of life. When not writing, life is a busy model of research, travelling to historic sites, walking, woodwork or sailing the blue seas on her beloved boat. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors. How are you? I'm really well, really well, Natalie. And it's, um, it's lovely to be here. How are you? 
I'm well, thank you. I'm so I'm so happy about this conversation. I've been looking forward to chatting with you. So let's just start with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Okay, so my author name is GJ Williams. The the G is for Gwenllian, which is a very very old uh, Welsh name. And it's much easier if you say, uh, if you don't have coal dust in your DNA, if you say Gwen Thiam with, a, with an, uh, the th in the middle rather than the Welsh th. So I'm obviously a Welsh woman. I'm a Welsh speaker, relearning my language. I live in Somerset in England, but also moved to London where I work. And I'm a psychologist by profession, but I actually wanted to be an actress, a writer or a historian. So I've had to come back to that later in my life. So all of my early early years were spent uh, writing, creating stories, learning about history, went into consulting for years. And writing was really a hobby, to be quite honest. It was a hobby in the background for decades until a very good friend in her final, year, final weeks um, with us on this side of the veil made me promise to get published. And uh, I promised and I really went for it. And weeks Later, I really started working on that. A year later, I was published. And here I am on the on the Tudor Trail. So delighted to be here. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And and we are here to actually talk about your, your debut novel. So The Conjurer's Apprentice. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about it? Well, my approach is to take real events, real people, and then I throw a plot and the consequent bodies into the middle. So it's set in 1555. So Mary Tudor was on the throne. So Henry VIII's eldest daughter. And so that's come after his son, uh, Edward VI. Now, Mary in 1555 was in the midst of her first phantom pregnancy. But people are already beginning to suspect that there's something going wrong because we're in the 10th month of the pregnancy. And that's just not going to work. And the rumour is starting that she's actually very ill, which she probably was, and that she's going to die, which she didn't. But that was the rumour. And there was a Catholic faction that wanted her husband, Philip of Spain, to take the throne. And if he did that, he'd be taking England, not only keeping England in the extremes of Catholicism, which Mary wanted, but he'd be taking England right into the grasp of the Holy Roman Empire. And there was concern about that. But the only person in his way was Elizabeth, Mary's younger sister. So if if she was to ascend the throne, um, then that meant the, the Catholic uh, hold would go down. So the story starts when the battered and dying servant of Elizabeth's supporter, Sir William Cecil, is dragged out of the Thames. The last words he utters and a letter in his pocket implicates Elizabeth in a treasonous plot. So Cecil calls John Dee, the great conjurer, the most learned man in Europe to investigate, and he's delighted to do so. But John Dee is not just a brilliant mind, he's got the added advantage that he has found a young girl in Wales who has this very strange ability to hear the thoughts, the motives and the feelings of other people. So as a servant, she's disguised as, disguised as a servant, she can walk amongst the great and the good and the key players, picking up information that she feeds back to him and he can take the glory that he so craves. So in the story, start with the, uh, the young boy in the Thames who dies and then the bodies start to pile up and they soon realise that they are in a race against time to find a serial killer in London who binds their victims in yellow wool and they have to find that serial killer before Elizabeth is accused of treason, taken to the tower and that's going to be the end of the Tudor dynasty. 
So I can't tell you much more because there'd be <laughs> lots of plot spoilers. But well, it that's sounds absolutely fascinating. I do have it on my TBR list and I want to get to it. I'm just looking at it now, actually. So right. do, you've told us a little bit about the sort of context, but do you want to just go perhaps into a little more detail about the historical context of your novel and maybe tell us a bit about what's happening in England at this time? Yeah, it's a really interesting period, actually. And and, and Mary's reign often gets skipped over and is just labelled as uh, Bloody Mary's reign. And we, you know, not too many historians really go into it because it's fairly short reign, to be quite honest. So Mary Tudor has been on the throne for just two years in 1555. And she's, you know, it was quite a dramatic start. And she was really popular because uh, between Edward and Mary, there was the very short reign of Lady Jane Grey. And now Lady Jane Grey uh, did not want to be queen. She was the puppet uh, of of men, really. But what Mary had done was that she had got uh, the nobles behind her. She had found herself an army and she marched to London and she took that throne. So she was very popular because the populace was very much saying, like, you know, the right thing has happened. But it wasn't long before the scales started to fall from their eyes. And there was quite a lot of concern about Mary. So she reinstated the heresy laws and that made Protestantism illegal. She was bent on returning the Pope to be the head of the church. She decided to marry a Spanish prince, so Philip II of Spain. And she was so besotted with him uh, just by seeing his picture that she would not listen to anyone. She was just besotted. She was going to marry him. So England was pretty multicultural at the time, but, you know, because there's lots of trade, they were used to seeing people of different colours, different languages. But as, you know, you often find, there was still a lot of xenophobia. And they were really quite worried about having a Spanish king. They were worried about having a Spanish king. They were also worried about the entourage that he brought with him. 4,000 Spaniards followed uh, Philip over to England. Lots of friction, lots of balls in the street. Uh, they refused to give the Spanish lodgings. Uh, they were very resentful of their dapper clothes and their good looks, you know, that the women liked. So things were really quite tense, uh, certainly in the capital of London. Now, the other thing going on is that Mary was a zealot of the Catholic faith. Now, she'd fought all her life for her faith. She'd fought against her her father. She'd fought against her brother. And she was absolutely determined that England was going to go back to Catholicism, what she called the true faith, and back to the overseeing of the Pope. And she wanted to wipe out Protestantism. She saw it as a sin. She saw it as dangerous. And that meant eliminating people who were using those beliefs, preaching those beliefs, living those beliefs. And how did she do that? Well, she wiped them out by burning them alive. Now, everybody calls her Bloody Mary. They believe that she was vicious and evil. But Mary actually really believed that she was cleansing their soul in the flames. So she thought that she was actually sending them uh, to heaven in doing this. Now, the first person to be set alight on a pyre was John Rogers. And he was a clergyman, um, a, a man of 10 children. He had to walk through his family to the pyre. That was in February 1555. By May, and May is when the Conjurer's Apprentice starts, 18 souls had already gone to their maker in the flames, and over 280 through her reign would would have faced that grisly end. So people in May 55 were already thinking, you know, this is a lot of people to burn. And they had a different attitude to executions back then. You know, it was a day out, but the stomachs were beginning to turn, and they were beginning to look at Elizabeth. You know, and thinking there is there's someone else. People were already 
beginning to think that she would be a better queen. There was Wyatt's rebellion, where he actually set a rebellion, saying that Mary Tudor should not be on the on the throne. She should not be bringing a Spanish king, and Elizabeth should be on the throne. So things were tense in 1555. Yes, it was quite a traumatic time, wasn't it? And yeah. and obviously you've mentioned her half-sister Elizabeth, and they kind of always had quite a tense and complicated relationship. But do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Well, it was very tense by 1555. So um, as a as a psychologist, I love to think about well, what was going on in their minds and rather than just the facts of where they were and what they were doing. Now, if we look at Mary first, she was very, very close to her mother, Catherine of Aragon, also a staunch Catholic. It was a very loving relationship. So when Henry VIII started to turn his eyes towards Anne Boleyn, mother and daughter really came together. And then when the mother uh, was divorced, when Catherine of Aragon was divorced, there was heartbreak. They hated Anne Boleyn. And they always called her the great whore. Anne Boleyn was also very unkind to Mary. So then Anne Boleyn has a little baby girl called Elizabeth. And poor Mary, she's 17 years old. You know, her father has um, has pushed her away. She is then, with the birth of this little baby Elizabeth, she's declared illegitimate. And she's marched to Elizabeth's home and told, you're going to be this baby's servant. Now, she was actually really kind to Elizabeth. She was, in many ways, a very kind woman. She was never unkind, never mean to the little girl. But that set up the foundations of a lifelong resentment. So then Anne Boleyn falls from favour. She's accused of adultery and incest, treason. Mary was, was delighted, to be quite honest. And she carried on the slander all of her life stating, and she probably believed, to be quite honest, that Elizabeth was not Henry's daughter, that she was really the daughter of an adulterous liaison between Anne Boleyn and her musician, Mark Smeaton. And she carried on that story all of her life, which, of course, Elizabeth would not like at all. So the resentment is now coming both ways. Then we go through the, the, the remaining four wives of Henry. They were all kind to the two sisters. Then you get to the reign of Edward VI and Mary finds herself isolated again because she's holding on to that Catholic faith and she's really fighting. Now, Edward was not only a little prig, but he was a staunch Protestantism. So he was putting her under massive pressure. And Elizabeth, being Protestant, was keeping a low profile. She was also keeping her name very clean after the Seymour affair and so did little to support her older sister to be quite honest. So Mary becomes queen and they were very very different. They were so different in attitude and faith and experience and I had to think you know as they would have as, as women and time had not been very kind to Mary. She all that distress and the loneliness and the various stomach ailments meant that they'd really taken their toll on her. And she looked older than her years. She was skinny with loose skin. The French ambassador actually described her as old and flabby. She wore gaudy clothes, too much jewellery, uh, which made her just look worse, to be to be quite honest. She wasn't the life and soul of the party. Uh, she wasn't vivacious, uh, though she was she was a, a kind woman and she had a very deep voice like a man. And you compare that to her little sister, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is younger. She's beautiful. She's very bright, intelligent. She's vivacious. She has admirers. She's loved by the people. This pesky Thomas Wyers had actually set up a rebellion to get her on the Queen. And it was all too much for Mary. So she put down that rebellion. She put her sister in the tower and the tables had turned. 
those two sisters did not trust each other. And it was tense. It really was. So Elizabeth was released to house arrest in Woodstock, but I think it was a rift that would never, ever be healed. Yes, um, I agree with you. And I always marvel at the fact that Mary released her on the 19th of May, which is, you know, talking about psychology, that the power Absolutely. of that is quite incredible. I think that has to be deliberate. Oh, it has I do to too. be. Yeah. And, you know, putting her in the tower, walking her up the same steps that her mother would have walked up, yes. you know, where she yeah. and Elizabeth collapsed on the steps, really believing that she was going to her execution. Yes, it does sound like psychological warfare there, doesn't it, between the sisters? Um, It was. You have talked about the fact that the country's obviously divided. There are some people that do support Mary, of course, and then others Mm -hmm. that would prefer to see Elizabeth on the throne. So who are Elizabeth's allies during this period, very, you know, troubled period of her life? Well, she's got quite a lot of allies around her and and, and supporters. Uh, I'll I'll focus on those that I I use in in the series. So Robert Dudley was certainly uh, a supporter at this point. So they've both been in the Tower at the same time, but we we don't know whether they met there. Some people say it's very doubtful that they actually met in the Tower. But he had known Elizabeth as a child, he claimed, since the age of eight. And he was certainly a good friend, even though at the time he was married to Amy Dudley. Then there's William Cecil. So he he's lying low at the time because he was involved in the Lady Jane Grey debacle. He had signed the the document uh, and he then managed to talk his way out of that by saying, no, no, I only signed it because I was a witness, because I saw other people signing it. I didn't mean it. I didn't want it to be queen. So he talked his way out of execution, but he was lying low in Mary's reign. But he's now joined Elizabeth because he's become her surveyor of her huge number of lands. So he's becoming an advisor and she trusts him, obviously. Then in her household, you've got the Welsh contingent. I have to say, William Cecil was also of Welsh descent. So he came from the Sysis of uh, Hereford and Monmouth. So, and he was very conscious of his, his his Welsh ancestry. But in the house, you've got Blanche Ab Harry. So she joined the household when Elizabeth was only months old. And she was probably brought there with the intention of being Elizabeth's governess because she was brought over by her aunt, Lady Troy, who was the very first lady of the cradle. There was Thomas Parry. Uh, he was her cofferer and general manager, very loyal, adored Elizabeth, a bit of a blunderer, to be quite honest, but um, he was there. You've also got Kat Astley. Now, she was a Devonian woman, not, not the Welsh contingent. She had positioned herself as Elizabeth's mother, effectively, and uh, she was even called Mama Cat by Elizabeth, very close to Elizabeth, very much a supporter and always given, no matter how many foolish things she did, she was always forgiven, as mothers are. And... Then there was uh, John Dee, and we don't know whether she knew him, whether she met him before she came to the throne. He'd certainly been introduced to her brother's court by William Cecil. He was known as a very learned man. He was known for doing horoscopes, and he certainly became close pretty quickly when she ascended the throne in 58. So, those are the, the people that uh, I tend to focus on around, but there would be many other people who were supportive of Elizabeth. 
Absolutely. And a lot of those people that you just mentioned, of course, dedicated their lives to her. It's quite amazing, yeah. really. And yes. and you've so you've introduced John D, who, of course, you said is one of the, the characters in your book. I know he's a fascinating mm-hmm. man. Do you want to tell us just a little bit more about him and maybe why he wanted this opportunity to calculate Elizabeth's horoscope? Yes. So he he is so fascinating and um, he was an amazing man and he was a real polymath. He was incredibly learned, incredibly able and stretched his brain into every corner you can even imagine. But he's been much maligned by history. So when we see him in films such as Elizabeth, Kate Blanchett's um, depiction of Elizabeth, he's depicted as an ancient old man in a dusty office. Now, in reality, he was only six years older than Elizabeth. They were fairly close in age. And then his reputation was further cemented as an old wizard by Shakespeare, who used him to create Prospero in, in The Tempest. He was called the arch conjurer uh, by people who didn't like him. And that was the, the equivalent of a cultist um, uh, back in those times. So who was he really? He was the he was the son of a Welshman called Roland D. Roland D was a rising and increasingly wealthy man. He was a wool packer, which meant that he could take the taxes of wool. And wool was a huge trade in the 1550s. Uh, young John, uh, also Roland D had position at court. So all was looking good for young John D. Um, he went to early education. He went to Cambridge at 14 or 15. He was recognised as a scholar. His father had position at court. Then Lady Jane Grey debacle, it all goes wrong. Roland gets involved through the Dudleys, who he's connected to. He then uh, loses his packer licence. He starts to steal plate from St Dunstan's Church. uh, And then he starts continuing to collect the tax on the sly. So he gets caught. He gets interrogated. He's lucky to uh, keep his head. But the D family fall from grace and favour and wealth very quickly. So, and I think that's really starts to mould the psychology of the D we know in later life. So John D went to the Low Countries. So he went to universities uh, such as Louvain. And this is where his huge intellect really started to expand. So he was studying with um, men like Frisius and Mercator and Atalius on maps and astronomy, Commandino on mathematics and many others. So he was working with the great minds of Europe. He loved that intellectual friendship. He was learning about mathematics, astronomy, cartography, tides, religions, the Kabbalah, medicine, more. And he started to build his great library. But he was constantly trying to claw back the position that his his father had lost. So when he came back to England, um, he went to the court of Edward VI and presented him with books. And he was given a pension um, and he thought he was on the rise. But then Edward didn't last very long. That poor lad died early. Mary arrived and Mary would have no truck uh, with John Dee. And then if you if you imagine the psychology, he, he really wants to be at court where he feels he should be. And the other part of John Dee is that he made some foolish decisions. And what, one of the foolish decisions that is depicted in The Conjurer's Apprentice was just three months before the novel starts. He went to Woodstock where Elizabeth is under house arrest and he casts the horoscope of Elizabeth and Mary and Philip of Spain. Now, he predicted that Elizabeth would be queen. Now, that's not a good idea, not a good idea at all, because it is treason to speak of a monarch's death. 
And if you start predicting it, that's particularly bad. So D, in trying to get on the right side of Elizabeth and Elizabeth's supporters, actually gave his enemies a chance to pounce. I can't say any more because it would be a huge plot spoiler for the book. But he will make more rash decisions that will come out in the future novels in the series. Now, obviously, Elizabeth has William Cecil by her side, and he stays by her side until his death, really. So what does William Cecil think of Dee? What's their relationship like? You know, I've really pondered this, and I've researched and researched and researched, and it's really quite difficult to to, to work it out. Because if you if you look back at the, what people were writing in those times, they didn't, unless it was poetry, they didn't really write that much about how they were feeling about things. It tended to be quite factual. But there is some evidence that Cecil used John Dee. There is evidence, some say, that John Dee was actually in Cecil's spy ring. And it's certainly true that uh, John Dee would put the code 007 on some of his letters. So was that a code that was saying that there's something in this letter? We know that Cecil uh, did introduce uh, John Dee into Edward's court, and he assisted him in... Uh, impressing the young king, he assisted him in getting a pension. So then he was certainly an advocate of John Dee. After the horoscope incident, I think Cecil, he was wily. The Cecil kept close with people who were useful to him and kept distant those who could be problematic to him. So I think after the horoscope incident, Cecil seems to keep Dee at uh, arm's length. And you start this pattern of Dee wanting to be close to Cecil. He wanted to be close to Blanche Ab Harry, who is very close to Elizabeth. He's always asking John Dee for more money. And Cecil, who was wily and also quite mean, always keeps him dangling. So he always keeps him dangling in hope of more, hope of more money, hope of more standing that he craves, but it never really happens. Gosh, another complicated relationship. The Tudor court is absolutely full of them, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And so you've obviously spent a significant amount of time researching your novel. That is is very clear. So did you uncover any surprising facts during this time? Oh, I could talk to you for an hour about things that when I read them, I thought, really? Because I think, you know, Tudor history, it's just a pot of amazing things and gossip and and characters. So things that come to mind immediately, I think that one of the, the big things is uh, Bloody Mary and her real character, the character that was Mary Tudor. So despite this reputation of being a zealot who would send people to their death and not even think about it, the other side of Mary was very sweet, very kind, gentle, generous to those around her who she trusted. Her ladies-in-waiting absolutely adored her. She was passionately in love with uh, Philip. She would weep when he wasn't there. She would give him anything, you know. And so that's a very different passionate, emotional side to a woman that is so often depicted as hard and severe. Her husband, I was really quite amazed to find out, had a bit of a reputation as a peeping Tom. So he was smacked by one of her ladies awaiting when they were getting getting ready and he was peeping behind a Turk curtain. He actually had actually, a whack on his arm. But for all of that, he didn't like Mary very much. He left her for months uh, despite her distress. He demanded money for foolish wars. He was instrumental in losing Calais that broke her heart even more. He had a mistress 
And it seems he also had a warm eye for her younger sister, which goes back to what we were saying about the psychology between the two women. Because very quickly after Mary's death, there was a suggestion through the Spanish ambassador that Philip would then marry Elizabeth. So those two really interested me. I think the other thing I found out that really made me really happy as a a Welsh woman is to find out that John Dee, though raised in London, was absolutely passionate about his Welsh roots. He spent huge amounts of time tracing his own lineage back, and, and it shows part of his character. Of course, he traced himself back to the royal kings and to Arthur. Of course, that would be part of his character. And I also found out that he kept very close tabs with his Welsh relatives. He went to the Welsh borders and he was communicating with them and they would have been first language Welsh. And that made me delve more. And some really excellent research by Paul Russell in Cambridge has given plenty of evidence showing how he annotated manuscripts, how he was corresponding. Good evidence that John Dee, though raised in London, both understood and maybe spoke Welsh. So that was a delight to find as a Welsh woman. Absolutely. So many treasures, really. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So we're up to the point of the episode where we play what I like to call a little game of 10 to go. So these are just 10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is, what's one of your favourite historic sites to visit? Oh, that's a tough one. At the moment, I'm I'm really swaying between Hever Castle and Hampton Court Palace. And not only the atmosphere there and the brilliance of the curation, but it's the people there and just the amazing knowledge. So I went to Hampton Court Palace and found a uh, a young man dressed up as a kitchen boy. He's actually a PhD in history. And I had a one hour brilliant lecture on how the kitchens worked, how the court worked. And just talking to people in those in those brilliant sites is it's an education and so I have to go Hampton Court Palace it's a tough choice isn't it they're two of my favorites as well and I can never decide between them so that's perfectly fine so what about the last book that you read or perhaps one that you're currently reading the last book I read in terms of factual is Alison Weir on Elizabeth and I always default for Alison Weir because her ability to compile so much detail and fact and put it into a prose style which is so digestible she makes it really easy for me because I'm a psychologist I'm not a historian though I'm researching my uh, the, the third book or have researched the third book I've written it now and so I was uh, looking at Alison Weir and then uh, the last uh, novel I read I went back to the uh, the dissolution by uh, C.J. Sansom, and why do I go back to that? Is because I started writing this type of fiction because of C.J. Sansom. Somebody said, "Write what you loved," and I loved what he did. Yeah, so that's think, the last. I think that's good advice. Definitely write what you love and what you love to read. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. It's been a long time since I've read that book, so I might need to return to that at some point. Mm-hmm. So what about a new skill that you'd like to learn? I would love to learn the skill of looking at those ancient manuscripts and being able to read them. As I could write, read a letter now. It's the style of the language and and the the different use uh, of words. So just the word diverse. If I was saying, you know, she had diverse interests, 
it meant different interests. So you could have diverse homes back then or diverse ideas or uh, diverse students. And and it's it's just little things like that. I would love to be able to read those manuscripts as easily as I can read Alison Weir. It does take a lot of practice. And of course, the non-standardized spelling doesn't help, does it, when no. one word is spelt no. in five ways. Um, what, what about, what do you like to do to relax and unwind a little bit? To relax and unwind, I do one of two things. Uh, if I've got uh, a plot problem that I cannot unknot, I go for a walk. And I'm really lucky. I, I live near a, a bird sanctuary, a wildlife area, and I go yomping through looking for different birds. And I can guarantee by, by the time I'm walking back up the hill down to my village, I've sorted the plot problem. If I just want to get away from it all, I sail. I come from a whole family of sailors. And if you put me on the water, I'm a very, very happy woman. And I'm also find that the motion of the boat helps me plop through as well. So it helps. Wonderful. And and do you have any pets? I do. I have a rather grumpy cat called Millie, who is extremely beautiful, extremely cute looking and is a little madam. You can't pick her up. You can't pet her. She's a princess. And, and what about a, a travel destination that perhaps you haven't been to, but the, you'd really like to go to? I would love to go around Europe because there are so many brilliant medieval towns that are as they were and medieval courts. So if I may, I would like to go on a multiple destination tour of Europe around all of those sites and learning more about medieval Europe. And I would love to go to the places that John Dee went to, Louvain, Cologne, Antwerp, the courts that he would go to in later life. I would love to do that. That sounds like a wonderful trip. And what about in terms of seasons? What is your favourite season and why? Spring, always spring. I don't like the dark months. I have to get away uh, in the winter. And when you see the world coming alive and my national flower, the daffodil, coming up through the ground, I just think, yes, warmth is coming back. Light is coming back. Uh, the hope of a lovely summer is is coming back. So it's definitely spring. And you're obviously, you know, very passionate about Tudor history. Are there other periods of history that you feel quite drawn to? Early medieval. So I also, in the background, I have started a series of early medieval, uh, also murder mysteries. But going back to the 1100s and the 1200s, I mean, again, it's an era where there's so much politics, so many characters, so many outrageous incidents and skullduggery. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And in particular, uh, where I would go then is into early medieval Welsh history, because it was turbulent. So you've got family clashes, you've got sibling clashes, you've got skullduggery, you've got, you know, joining with the English, uh, going against the English and and everything. It's, it's fascinating. And what does your uh, ideal Sunday morning look like? My ideal Sunday morning is to Stay in bed longer than I normally do. I, I try to be a really early riser. So it's to uh, stay in bed a little bit longer, then to have a good hour's reading. Then I watch a politics programme uh, in the UK. I love watching Laura Koonsberg, who that catches me up with what's going on. Love her style. And then I go for a walk. So I mix 
my head and yeah. uh, learning about my environments and the country and and then going out for a refreshing walk. And it doesn't matter if it's raining, hailing, shining, I'll go. Now that does sound wonderful. And very last question. I think you actually answered this when you were chatting earlier, but I'll ask you anyway. So when, when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an actress and a writer. Uh, I also was really interested in history. So I used to spend my time writing. Uh, I wrote all the school plays. I wrote the brownie plays. I was also a bossy little girl. So I not only had a star role, but I directed, constantly asking people about history. And one story about my childhood that I love to tell is that when I was nine years old, I had a teacher who was uh, Mr. Williams. We had the same surname. And he said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a writer and I want to write about olden times. And he said, well, go on then. And then life took me in a different uh, direction. And then at the launch party of my first published novel, The Conjurer's Apprentice, Mr. Williams was on the stage with me. Oh, that is a lovely story. I love that. Yeah. yeah. That's really lovely. And, And so the very last thing, and I promise I'll let you get on with your day, is the Tudor takeaway. So I like to ask my guests for a takeaway, something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I do. I'm going to give you three. So if you want to understand the Tudor court, the personalities that created Mary and Elizabeth to go back, go to Alison Weir. She's written so much about the Tudor court and she will take you into that court. You feel as though you're there and you understand the personalities. That woman is a psychologist as well as a brilliant historian. If you want to understand Mary as she really was, go to Anna Whitelock's book, Mary Tudor, England's First Queen, because she really gets under the skin. And your podcast is my go-to, but there's a website called History Extra. Great articles. And if you want to do something and you're in the UK, go to Hever Castle after March the 25th, and they are opening the Berlin apartment. And that will transport you back to the life and the world of the Berlins and how people really lived in that castle at that time. Wonderful takeaways. And yes, I cannot wait to see the new Berlin apartments. I will yeah. I will fly 21 hours to see those, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I would do. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk Tudors with us. This has been such a fascinating discussion and I really appreciate you making the time to chat with me. Thank you so much, Natalie. And it's been a real pleasure to be here. And I think I've said to you before that when I started researching for the Tudor Rose murders series. Yours was the first podcast I signed up to. And I remember thinking, I want to be on that. And so it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions, or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.